1: Welcome to the Audible presented by trader Joe's i'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, who is on location in Seattle. Bruce, how the Huskies look
2: big. They look very big. I went over to practice the other day with my colleague Brock Heward, and he said, and I would trust his word as much as anybody on this because he obviously played here, played there and grew up around the program. He said this is the biggest Washington team he's ever seen and You see that in the lines. You certainly see that on the defensive line. And you know what? They have, they have a huge quarterback, at least a tall one. I don't know if he's he's not as big as Justin Herbert, but he's tall. in Jacob Eason, we'll see how good he is. I got to say at this point, the jury is definitely still out between him and Jake Hainer, who's the guy who's more experienced and has more time in the system. But one of them was a five-star high school recruit. The other one wasn't. And that's why there's a lot of hype around the former Georgia quarterback.
1: Yeah, you know, actually, let me follow that up by if people have been reading The Athletic this week, they see that you. You and me and Andy Staples have been doing our group text threads, our predictions for each conference. We give our predicted standings, then we have a little bit of a exchange. I'll let people in on a little secret. It's not actually a, it has not actually been a text thread. It's been an email thread Bent Well, it's to been be a like, text
2: thread at some point to say, "Hey, is somebody
1: <laughs> is somebody answer somebody your email right now?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been a little bit like when you get stuck in a fantasy draft where the person's taking too long. There have been moments when everybody got really active and I fell behind, and there's been moments when I've just been waiting and waiting and waiting. But we happen to be recording on the day the Pac-12 went went up, and there's a little bit of a split. Andy and I have Oregon winning the division, you have Washington winning the Pac-12 North. And I would say that I went into this before I actually sat down and really worked on it, assuming I would pick Washington, because I just think they're, they're that program now with Chris Peterson, where whoever they lose, they're going to reload, especially on defense. The reason I ended up not pulling the trigger is, some, is, is based on something you just got into. It alarms me that this close to the season, five-star quarterback, former Georgia true freshman starter Jacob Eason has not outright won the job. You saw it up close and you're still comfortable picking them to win the North. So am I being a little too worried about the quarterback situation at Washington? Because I know who Oregon's quarterback is going to be, and he's pretty darn good.
2: He is. I just have a lot of confidence in the rest of Washington. Washington, by the way, gets Oregon at home. And I think I have more confidence in Washington navigating its Pac-12 schedule than I do Oregon. Last year, Oregon struggled. They weren't that sharp when they played on the road. And I don't you know, they have some tough games on the road. I still think they're really good. And I think it's close. I have a question for you. This is an interesting juxtaposition here. So I get the feeling that in your mind, and if you could honestly do this, if you could take me back to what you thought about your expectations between Jacob Eason and Justin Fields around January 1st of 2019, being not going into the spring. But did you, did you think they were about similar caliber? Please be honest.
1: So you're saying Justin Fields after his freshman season at Georgia? I'm,
2: I'm thinking about like before before spring football or even at spring football. Did you think Justin Fields and Jacob Eason were, were – what was your expectations? Was it similar? And they're both five-star heavily hyped. Quarterback recruits who started their careers at Georgia and then transferred.
1: I think my expectations were a little bit higher for Justin Fields just because maybe recency bias uh, and the fact that he's a dual threat guy. You know, Jacob Eason, it's been three years now since he was last a college football starter. even You know, one game or less than one game of 2017 before Fromm took over. So for all the talent, all the recruiting hype, I mean, he's been out of sight, out of mind for three years now. We didn't see much of Justin Fields last year, but we did see him. But I guess I've soured a little bit on both of them. Now, you haven't soured at all on Justin Fields. No. And I, I think he'll like, be a star at some point. I just don't know if he will be quickly enough for Ohio, that Ohio State needs him to be this year.
2: I feel like two things. One, I feel like it's unfortunate. I think you read too much into what you saw in a spring game with Justin Fields. I feel like, and look, I could be proven wrong to this, but I, my feeling I'm from talking to a lot of people – who had seen them, you know, in the recruiting process and everything, is I think Justin Fields will prove to be a five-star quarterback. I am skeptical that Jacob Eason will look like one. I think Jacob Eason has a strong arm. Jacob Eason is 6'5", 6'6", but I don't think he will end up having a career what we think of a five-star quarterback will be in college.
1: Do you think there's any possibility he won't win the job? I think there's a chance he won't win the job. The guy he's competing against, well, some
2: people look at him and think he's a walk-on because he's not that big. But he's pretty good, and he knows the system. And the thing is, with that system, it's an interesting kind of situation where it takes a really savvy guy to play in that system because you know there's a lot of motions and shifts, and it's complicated. And Kellen Moore thrived in it, and Jake Browning spent a lot of time operating in it at times more efficiently than others but I don't know if this is the ideal system necessarily for the the deal set uh, Jacob Eason has necessarily because it's going to be challenging to him so I I would not at all be surprised if there was a bunch of games where we saw Jake Hayner starting but we'll see you know it's it's very interesting on that front it also dawned on me as I was saying this because you know I've got some of Northwestern in my head because we have them week one our crew does Northwestern at Stanford and so you got the other five-star quarterback transfer Starting the game for your alma mater, and that's Hunter Johnson. It wouldn't shock me if he didn't win that job.
1: I mean, I I was gonna say he hasn't he hasn't won the job yet either, and I don't know if it's Pat Fitzgerald just trying to keep guys motivated, or if he really hasn't separated himself from uh, T.J. Green, Trent Green's son, who. Was the only I think the only guy left there who had any experience and it wasn't very much. So yeah, he uh, did
2: play last year in the opener when uh, Thorson was still coming off the knee injury or really coming off. Yeah, the knee against, injury. Uh, I thought he played. Yeah, he played reasonably well. I thought at least that's my memory of it. But you know, thinking about that, I've had this stat in my head and, I, and I've kind of omitted Justin Fields for Scott knows what reason. But like, there's never been a five star quarterback who transferred someplace else and has really played like what you'd five I think a five star guy would be. I think Justin Fields will be the first one to do that. I don't know. I'm curious what we get from Hunter Johnson at the end of this.
1: Wait, wait, wait. uh, wait. Never. Never. No five-star quarterback has ever transferred somewhere and had what you would consider to be a five-star career. Correct. Hmm. I
2: I would say, and look, if if one of our listeners can find one that played like a, you know, when I say five-star guy, I think that is like a first-round talent. It's not like, oh, he had, you know, Jeff Driscoll did a nice job at Louisiana Tech, but I would not call that five-star. Would Troy
1: Aikman have been a five-star coming out of high school?
2: Yes, I would think so, but I don't know what
1: was But going the fact that there. I have yeah, to go well. back that far is a pretty telling thing. Back to the podcast in a second, but Bruce, it's fantasy football time. I was going to draft Antonio Brown, I'm not so sure to do that. You should draft Saquon. We're going to talk about our sponsor, Draft. It's a fantasy football app where you can win... 3.5 million dollars in real money and yes Saquon number one player listed on there what draft is it's a season-long league with no management you just set the lineup and forget it no salary caps no trade do you have to
2: babysit this thing
1: no waiver wire you don't have to babysit it at all in fact you don't even have to set your lineup your best players get automatically started and you'll get the best score every week guaranteed you just do the draft and 16 weeks later bam you're a millionaire, doesn't get any easier than that. So, for a limited time only, you can get free entry into the best ball championship when you make your first deposit. But you have to use our promo code Audible. That's right, free shot at $1 million just by using promo code Audible when you make your first deposit on Draft. Just search Draft in the App Store. Go to Draft.com and play free with promo code Audible. I was going to save this for later, but since you brought that stat up, it's very relevant to uh, one of the mailbag questions we got. So let's just bring that up right now. Justin Barrow from Charlotte. This is off the news this week that Miami has named its starting quarterback for the Florida game, and it is not the guy a lot of people assumed it would be. It's redshirt freshman Jaron Williams. So Justin, Stu and Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I remember one of you making the point a few years ago that players who decommit from two or more schools during their recruitment almost never pan out. Miami's Tate Martell fell into this category and has since transferred from Ohio State to Miami, where he did not win the starting job. As I'm writing this, there were reports that he no-showed at practice after losing the starting job. He did not go to practice, but he was back the day after that. And it would not surprise me if he transferred again. Is Martell simply a quarterback who got too much praise at an early age, or is he as much of a diva as some may perceive him to be? Do you ever see him winning a D1 starting job? I don't think—I was he. I think he was a four-star, right? But He was, he was a four-star but he was, guy, yeah. You know, he was ranked— Top 100 overall player.
2: It's very hard, by the way. I mean, Kyler Murray, notwithstanding, it's very hard for a guy who's 5'10 quarterback to be a five star.
1: Wait, there you go. Kyler Murray, five star transfer and won the Heisman.
2: Ooh, good one. Let me see. I think you're right, Stu. You just, you just like solved our re- our readership from our listenership from going, you idiot. All right. I'll look that up
1: to confirm that he was a five star while you talk about Tate Martell.
2: Uh, no, he was a five star. I no, know he, he was.
1: was. Okay. Yeah. So never, never until last year. Wow. All
2: right, so maybe the tide is turning. Interesting. So there we go. So what was the question about Tate Martell, though?
1: Basically, was he hyped up too much, got too much praise in an early age? As he? You know, I think, look, when, he, when this news came out this week, and this is pretty telling, right? When the Jaron Williams news came out, Tate Martell was trending on Twitter, even though it wasn't him that won the job. It was you know, he's become sort of a villain, dating back to his days as a recruit. And so, and I think this is, while he may have brought some of this upon himself, I still think it's unfair to be so harsh toward a college kid. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of people gloating slash mocking Tate Martell because he transferred and still didn't win the starting job.
2: I mean, look, I know some of the recruiting guys, when I say recruiting guys, I mean people in the recruiting business who work for the 247s and and rivals, or at least I think it's a bunch of 247 guys in this case I know, who all speak very highly of Tate Martell and the way he treated people, at least around them. But I do think there's, you know, he is was pretty high profile, or has been, on social media. He made some sub-tweets at times that definitely have, certainly riled up a lot of Ohio State fans and riled up some other fans. And it's not shocking that there was blowback at this point. And I think in this day and age, It's a lot different for kids to to grow up with Twitter and social media than what probably you had years ago. And I do think some of this does. I'm not necessarily saying it's Tate Martell, but there is an entitlement that comes with some of these guys putting their star rankings and who their offers are and all this other stuff living in this fishbowl on social media. And I think Tate Martell is one of the bigger examples of a kid who has just kind of turned on him in the face of all that. And I think some of that has to do with, like, referencing this question where he was, you know, at one point, he was committed to A&M, and he, he was surrounded by a bunch of talent that was committed with talent. I think he definitely has has some ability, but it's got to be in kind of the right system, and I don't know necessarily where, where he fits with that. But, I mean, look, he certainly helped Miami in the transition get some buzz going in recruiting and helped some of the kids who knew from the recruiting world, look at Miami as a destination to transfer to.
1: I mean, I think it's a sign of the times that if a guy, if in this case, four-star recruit doesn't become a starting quarterback for a major program by the start of his third year, he's a, he's, now he's a failure. I mean, you know, you and I, when we first started covering this, you know, remember all the Florida State would go from one junior to the next, like they would never start an underclassman guys would just wait their turn. Um, I know the change considerably, and these that's why these guys transfer so quickly. But, I mean, at the end of the day, in another at another school or in another, you know, where he wasn't being beaten out by a redshirt freshman or he being beaten out by a senior, would it be the end of the world if it took until his fourth year in college to become a college starting quarterback? I don't know. But at the end of the day, the message these kids get basically from the time they're on the elite eleven circuit and whatnot is like, you, if you're not starting as a red freshman or redshirt freshman, then something's wrong. You need to get out and start over.
2: Stu, not that anybody would give me the keys to hire somebody, but you hire people all the time at The Athletic. What is the secret for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing? What should we do? Where should we go?
1: We hire so often and so frequently at The Athletic that I frankly have a hard time keeping track of everybody. That's why I need to use ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. I cannot tell you how amazing that is to get a quality candidate through the site within the first day, speaking from personal experience as a recruiter. Right now,
2: and you got, that's how we got Staples, isn't it?
1: Yep. He applied through ZipRecruiter and and off we went. And right now our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash TASB, as in the audible Stu and Bruce. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash TASB, ZipRecruiter.com slash T-S-A-B, ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. How about this for a headline in college football? The New York Magazine, which does not chime in all that often on college football, as far as I know. Uh, all the other headlines on the right side are about Jeffrey Epstein and um, and Donald Trump. College football's real evil villain by Will Leach, who you may know, you may know Will as the uh, former founder of Deadspin. Basically, the gist of this column is there was a debate last week. I became part of it or injected my opinion into it about whether he should have given Kelly Bryant a ring. Uh, I actually put a poll on Twitter. Two-thirds of the people said no. He, Kelly Bryant, he, he left the team four games in the season, and he doesn't deserve a ring.
2: By I the way, to... Kelly, Bry- Kelly Bryant didn't make a big deal about this.
1: So. No, somebody asked him, and he said, sure, I'd take one, but he didn't, like, express well, any sort of... That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, the first, I don't know, third to half of this column is, a, his, is all these examples that I frankly don't think are exactly relevant of baseball players being traded and getting a ring uh, obviously kelly bryant did not get traded he chose to leave but regardless and then it gets into the reason he's saying he's evil is basically because dabo makes 6.8 million dollars and has been on the record saying college athletes shouldn't be paid criticized colin kaepernick's protest a few years ago referred to himself i know this was a story on Finebaum for a couple of days referred to himself as Osama bin Dabo it's just like one link after another after another to all these things all of which come to the conclusion that Nick Saban is considered more like the evil character in college football right Dabo is the fun loving bring your own guts guy but that really Dabo is the evil villain in all this so Thoughts? First of all, I, I would take
2: issue with the word evil here. I think evil is something on a level that is just not appropriate here for you can take issue individually with some of the, some of these points about Dabo either misspeaking at a time or I don't you know the Kelly Bryant issue I don't see as something to rail against him over. I get where he's coming from. look I, I can see both both angles of that.
1: Yeah, I happen to be on the go-ahead, throw him a bow, and give him a ring camp. But I fully concede that you know, there's two sides to that. And it's, not, it's not blatant that it he necessarily should be getting one. Will certainly thinks so.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, to me, I I mean, I probably met Will Leach 12 years ago, so I can't say I know him. I mean, I've met him once, but I'm not. This, to me, seems especially hot takey. At the point where, like, you're just kind of like, okay, he's calling him evil. He's going over this, and I don't know. I I just think it's it's.
1: Well, I thought it was pretty telling that it's link after link. Was link after link to aggregations of out of context quotes from Davos Swinney. He said all these things. Like, I'm not nobody. Nobody made them up. But there's really no there's no context. So, David Hale, who covers covers the ACC for ESPN, (laughs) but that includes obviously a lot of Clemson. Had a long thread giving a lot of context to this, and some people are accusing him of being a dab of apologist. But I do think it's a pretty good example of the difference between taking shots from afar versus being there on the ground and and knowing you know what this person is really like. He put a lot of great. In fact, he gave a lot of stuff, stuff about the Kelly Bryant situation. I didn't even realize. So about kind of the circumstances of his departure. The only thing that I'd be willing to concede a little bit. Is something that you know. I, I called Steve Spurrier on this a few years ago. I do think that the coach who is media friendly and jokes around a lot, and his practices are mostly open, tends to get more of a free pass than others. And so some of these things that he mentions in here, if some other co- if Nick Saban had said them, if Jim Harbaugh had said them, people probably would have teed off on them. Dabo probably does get a little bit more leeway because of his relationship with the media. Is that right? No, but I'm conceding that that probably does happen.
2: I would say also that people probably have a feeling of a better understanding of him. You know, I, I would say what, what you're saying is probably true. But I think some of that goes in with, I do think, approachability and accessibility. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there are some people who, I don't know of any, anybody in the coaching profession who thinks Dabo Sweeney is evil. You know, people within the business. I know there's a few people who think there are a couple of coaches who fit into that category. I've never heard that about Davos Sweeney.
1: I also Um, think coaches are very aware of, of who in their profession they think is genuine and who they think is a phony. You know, who is whose public image is not necessarily who he really is behind the scenes. And I've never heard anybody suggest that about Davos
2: yeah, again, I also to me, like I, I guess I just struck by that four letter word evil as I take it very, you know, like literally is this person is, is so reprehensible and I just don't think the things that are listed there would dabble fit into that at all. And that's why I feel like it's just it's it felt like a you know, the ultimate hot take and it was just kind of a head scratcher and I don't know. I think we probably wasted <laughs> wasted too much time kinda Kind of, you know, giving it oxygen. Yeah, I mean, I would guess I would guess. And I, I, look, if our listeners are this way, maybe it's Jason Gorluski or something, because <laughs> I, I think he's a. I thought he's a South Carolina native, but I would be surprised. I'm sure there are South Carolina fans who don't like Dabo. because you know what? He coaches the arch rival, and he's leading them to national titles and everything. I would be surprised. I could be wrong. But if there were South Carolina Gamecock fans who see him as evil and really could have a justification of that.
1: Evil? No. But I would imagine most South Carolina fans don't like that with Sweeney. No,
2: they probably think it's over the top and some of the you know, yeah. isn't
1: what it seems. I get it.
2: But I, I'm just saying. The South Carolina gonna... fans listening
1: right now are going to call us out for their favorite thing to latch on to is austering. Like, how come there's not a full flown, you know, investigate, uh, journalism investigation going on at, at Clemson and how they're, all their players are doping and. You know only three of them got caught that that's the thing i noticed them latching onto a little bit hey you know when things are as one side as they are right now you gotta you gotta come up with something but no i don't think i don't think he's evil and i think that uh look i mean do i i disagree with him i think college athletes should be at the very least able to be compensated for their name image and likeness and i don't think it'll be the end of college football if that happens but he's not exactly alone in that opinion most college football coaches feel that way most establishment college people feel that way so if you're evil for thinking that then I guess most of the sport is evil I
2: yeah and I would imagine most of the stuff you may disagree with him would be things you could have a conversation about there you know that's the nature of it I, I think with his personality I can't say I know Dabo as well as I know I feel like I know a lot of other head coaches but I don't know again to me
1: this was like have you been to Clemson's facility I have not no, I've not. Everything's changed in, like, what, the last three years? Yeah, you gotta get, you're like the last member of the media who hasn't gone down the slide. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go get your requisite Instagram video of you going down the slide. Let's head to the mailbag. We got some good questions this week. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first one is a very interesting one from Jason Chambers. Bruce and Stu, what in your mind is a more difficult jump for college teams to make? Going from eight to nine wins to a great program? We're going from a great program to winning a national championship. Great programs trying to win a national championship right now: Washington, Penn State, Oklahoma, and Georgia. Good programs trying to be great: Utah, Texas A&M, Oregon, Wisconsin, Iowa State. I'm not sure I'd put Iowa State in the same category as the other four just yet. But
2: by the I, way, I'm guessing this isn't the Jason Chambers, right?
1: If it is, uh, I'd be I'd be very surprised. Okay, so. I think it's harder to go from great to national champion. What do you think?
2: I would agree with that. Look, I mean, the examples that, that he led there, right, there are, to me, it, it's this word. Maybe it's from very good programs to win a national title. I don't think you're great until you win the title.
1: You, know, you don't think was... Oklahoma football, and he's not talking about all time. Clearly, no, he's no. talking about, like, the current regime. You don't think Oklahoma is, has a great program right now?
2: I think you're I I think, let's save the word great. I mean, I think we overuse it too much. Let's save it for when you win a national title.
1: Well, in that in that case, there are only two great programs in the sport right now, huh? Correct. Okay. What? what how do? But, I mean, oh, Ohio State, twenty fourteen. Right. Is that recent enough? I guess they got a new coach now. Yeah, they they going to coach. prove themselves all let's, over it. Let's say
2: semantics-wise, I think you know I don't want to throw the word "great" around too much. So it is
1: really, really hard to win a national title. I, I don't think. In fact, it's almost unfortunate that we use that as the barometer for, you know, like Mark Rick never won a national title at Georgia. And so, therefore, he's not held in the same regard as. Less miles. You know, Less miles, right. Exactly. Mac good, Brown. good, Good analogy, Mac Brown. But, I mean, he had a heck of a tenure there. And he had one team, uh, you know, early on there. I guess it would have been, oh, you know, David Pollock, David Green. They went 13 and 1. You know, in other years in the BCS, that won you the national title. It just so happened that that year, uh, Ohio State and Miami were undefeated. So now we have four teams. Now, so maybe that is going to happen. Like some, an example like that might be less rel- less likely to happen now. But it's still awfully hard to crack that top four, much less get to the end and win it. Now, Here's whereas I think I a large number of programs have it in them to go from seven and five to ten and two.
2: Well, here's how I I figured you would go approach this. I'm not disagreeing if this is going to be the the premise you're going to adopt. So we had this conversation several times. We had it last year, most notably, with with one of the teams on here, Wisconsin. And it was, had they recruited at a high enough level to win national titles, you can be, I think, you can be a playoff team without having having classes that average in the top ten. You can, but can you win a national title there? I mean, Clemson, I think you know, was a quirk where I think they were twelfth, right? The way we did the math last yeah. year from two, four, seven rankings. But by and large, it is hard to do it without without that. Now you can be really, really good without it. I'm convinced, you know, through development and everything and and whatnot. But I think that's the part where it's the where it's the interesting threshold that you have to cross.
1: I mean, in my time covering the sport, there have only been two programs that completely changed from being irrelevant to national championship program lsu and clemson right everybody else is kind of the usual suspects but think about how many schools have gone from bad to very good during that time even if it wasn't permanent you know baylor had its moment in the sun uh, wake forest went to an orange bowl what's you what's know, the period you're talking about by the way on this are you saying from like two thousand to now,
2: or are you saying from like the the mid nineties?
1: I'm saying from you know I started covering it in ninety nine, so from from there forward. Okay,
2: so Utah definitely would fit in that category, right?
1: Utah definitely is a is a school that went from irrelevant to to very good. I mean, I, I was gonna say great, but apparently I'm not allowed to use that. So from there they went from irrelevant to very good. Uh, TCU went from irrelevant to very good. Boise State. Oregon. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when Oregon wasn't a factor. Lots of schools have done this, but only two, LSU and Clemson, have become national championship programs during that time.
2: Yeah, LSU sleeping giant, Clemson, you know, had won a national title before, certainly too.
1: So at LSU, but it was in the 50s.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, LSU, you would think, would set up similarly to A&M, which I see A&M on this list, but... A&M had one really, really great year in recent history.
1: Yes, um, and again, they're they're all, they're going to remain this. They're they're not, It's hard to call them a sleeping giant when they're paying their coach seventy five million dollars. They're uh, you know, they're, they're spending and the fan support and everything is is national championship level, but they have yet to actually show they can do that on the field. Uh, our friend James Birdsong, frequent Audible emailer, hey Bruce and Stu, I'm so surprised that Auburn, Oregon is taking a back burner with tickets going for just $50 each online. I would say the fan bases might feel the same way. I really feel like the game is going to have big implications on the season. To me, Mario Cristobal has the second-year coach vibe going for him with the amount of talent he's got on both sides of the ball. I believe he's referring to the phenomenon of second-year coaches who rise Winning the- national yes. titles. Yes, that, okay. that has been a Bob Stoops, Jim Tressel, maybe Pete Urban Carroll, Meyer. Urban, Meyer. Urban Meyer. Yeah. Gus Malzahn is arguably playing one of the toughest schedules in the nation has to placate his fan base while breaking in a new quarterback and taking over play calling duties. It just feels like more of the national coverage is going to LSU Texas and Texas A&M Clemson than this one. I wouldn't read too much into the ticket price. It's in Arlington, Texas. Neither of those schools are particularly close to it, but... I don't I
2: don't I don't feel like Texas A&M Clemson is is siphoning off a lot. Of it. I think LSU and Texas has gotten some buzz. I think some of that is because I don't know, I feel like Auburn stock took a bit of a hit and I so I don't think people are looking at Auburn saying, "All right, they're probably the fifth best team in the SEC." So I think in that has a little to do with it. It wasn't like Oregon had a, you know, had a nice year last year, but it wasn't like Oregon Just came off when it it wasn't like Oregon was at the same place Washington was where they were the top team in the conference. So I feel like to me it's the most intriguing matchup of Week One. I don't know if it's got the national intrigue that LSU and Texas have at this point, but I would definitely put it above Texas A&M, Clemson, just because I do think there's an element of I I, I think most people expect Clemson to win that game against A and M, and I feel like if Oregon wins that. Man, there's going to be a lot of people in the Pac-12 beating their chests that here we come.
1: And that it's not the reason it's not getting the hype of Auburn-Washington game last year to open the season is both those teams are in the top ten. Auburn was coming off an uh, SEC championship game appearance. You know, this year Auburn's coming off a disappointing season, and and Oregon, you know, is getting attention, but they were nine and four last year. We both were there the last time they played a football game and scored seven points. So. You know i think there's a little bit of buy-in required but i will say there are some there are i agree with him that there are big stakes it's very big for the pac-12 oregon loses this game to an sec team and everybody's going to say the pac-12 they're not going to be in the playoff conversation again fairly or unfairly there, this becomes an indictment of the whole conference and if gus malzahn loses that game the the noise is going to be deafening uh even though i don't think it would be a you know embarrassing loss especially if he's going to be starting a freshman quarterback. But there's already a segment of the fan base that's ready to, to pounce. And so if you lose that game, knowing you've still got to play Alabama and Georgia and LSU, etc., it's going to be hard. Yes, I would, uh, I would agree with you.
2: All right, Stu, the next question is from Joel in Fort Collins. Hey, Stu and Bruce. I recently had some fun paging through an old Clemson media guy from the 90s. The athletic department was very proud of their newfangled thing called a website It was introducing. And one thing stood out to me. The guide noted that at the end of the upcoming season, the Gator Bowl would have the number one pick of the ACC teams after the BCS, while the Peach Bowl would get the number three pick. Now, two decades later, the Peach Bowl is in the playoff rotation, while the Gator Bowl has slid way down the pecking order. My question is about the -the behind-the-scenes work of running a bowl game. How do the bowl committees work to position themselves relative to the competition? Where does their money come from, and why has the Peach Bowl done so much better for itself than the other mid-level bowls?
1: It's a good question. It Steve, is a good question. A, right, up right up my alley. Bowl, you are working bowl on bowl projections, projections, preseason bowl then, projections you, right now. Yes. Uh, and right. by the way, I do remember when the Gator Bowl was where the, the number two uh, ACC team would go. I, I didn't. I'd be curious which was the one between the Gator and the Peach Bowl that I don't remember. I mean, I think the, the single biggest thing the Peach Bowl has had going for it for the last 20 years is Chick-fil-A. You know, I'll, you look at some of these other bowls, they struggle to get a sponsor or keep a sponsor, but Chick-fil-A has been uh, behind them. I have no idea how much they pay them, but it's a lot in terms of how they got into the playoff rotation. You know, it happened to coincide nicely with when the new stadium was going to open there, you know, a couple years after the playoff launched. And the Gator Bowl, you know, Jacksonville, I think, was probably considered a more desirable destination 20 years ago than it is now. You know, I, I don't know how old that stadium is. It's probably not that old in the grand scheme of things, but obviously it's not Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They've had trouble with attendance. You know, it's it's kind of a, a remnant of the old bowl system, whereas the Peach Bowl feels like it's... Uh, more on the foreline, uh, forefront of, of this generation of bowls. But yeah, I mean, where do they get their money? Ticket sales, sponsorship, uh, and in some cases, who's organizing it? You know, and, and the, I know there's that great sports commission in Atlanta. They probably put a lot of money behind it. I don't know, frankly, where the Gator Bowls funding comes from, but at the end of the day, that the conferences are picking who, which schools they want to go to or which bowls they want to send their schools to based on who's going to pay them the most money. Simple as that. So, it's, so however you want to come up with that money, that's on the, uh, the city and the bowl committee. Peach Bowl's done a great job of that. Others, the Holiday Bowl is a good example of one that has really fallen back and, and struggled from where it was. In,
2: hey, I'm not going to have you defame the Holiday Bowl when I've got out and spoken to them many times.
1: I love There's the Holiday lots Bowl. Of lovely
2: people in San Diego.
1: I love the Holiday Bowl, but it used to be, you know, I think the number no, two stop, 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 Big 12 <laughs> against the number two Pac-12. And they literally just put out a press release this morning. Uh, announcing their new bowl arrangement starting next year with the ACC. How many Boston College fans do you think are gonna uh, descend on? San Diego? I know
2: one, and he's not gonna be talking to you anymore after he saw where you picked Steve Adazio's team.
1: Yes, I would imagine that's true. If he can coordinate that with his Monday Night Football schedule, I don't know. I think uh, they lost. They had the Big Ten, and they lost the Big Ten. They filled in the they put the ACC in there, but that's uh, that, that's a tall order um this is a fun one but, from matt by the me. way
2: so just to button this up the gator bowl stadium was opened up in 1928 it was demolished in 1994 and then they got it going again under i guess it's tiaa bank field for the jaguars so i guess that's about 20 years ago now
1: that's and sadly 20 year old stadiums are now considered old yes okay go ahead next question matt from los angeles ohio state is 14 and 1 against michigan since 2004 with their new coach, what do you think the split will be on the game over the next fifteen years? This is a rivalry, by the way, that tends to swing wildly from one direction to the next. In the '90s, it was the whole storyline was that Ohio State couldn't beat Michigan. It, it John Cooper could not beat Michigan, and now in this century, it's that Michigan can't beat Ohio State.
2: You know, I think Ohio State is positioned pretty well to to extend what Urban Meyer did. I don't think they're going fourteen and one again. I just think it's hard to keep. To keep that level of dominance, it's Michigan. It's not like, you know, remember when Notre Dame had that humongous run over Navy or when Florida had it over Kentucky? I mean, you're, those schools were operating football at a different level. I really don't think Ohio State is operating its football system at a radically different level than Michigan. But everything I've heard with Ryan Day, and I, I think this speaks to, I just had a story earlier this week about some of these rising assistant coaches. And two of the guys are guys that are on his staff. One was a guy he brought in, Jeff Hafley. The other one is Brian Hartline, who's proven to be quite the upgrade from Zach Smith. And I think what you've seen is, just from talking to people there, it's just it's the everything is running very smoothly. And I think what you feel like is a program that had quite a bit of drama last year, some of it, quite honestly, was self-inflicted with Urban Meyer and everything, and some of it Was just it was hovering around the program from it just felt like it was around it for a while, you know, with his health issues and everything else. I think that they're in a different place right now, and they you you see a lot of, you know, they're recruiting really well. I think they have a lot of momentum, so I don't think it's going to flip the other way. But I do think this is a this is the year Michigan. I think I mean this is a hunch is gonna is gonna finally Jim Harbaugh is finally going to beat the arch rival, but. I don't think it's going to mean that they're going to, Michigan's now going to go on a run where they're going to win like six of
1: the next seven. So what's your number? What's your 15-year record?
2: First of all, I don't, I don't know if I would expect Ryan Day to be there
1: 15 years. I wouldn't expect either coach to be there in 15 years. No,
2: I'm not sure I would expect Jim Harbaugh to be there five years from now. Uh, I suspect Ryan Day will probably be in the NFL at some point in the next 15 years. I don't know that for any fact or anything like that, but I just think at some point I could see him there. I'm going to give a cop-out an answer and say it'll be – it'll be uh
1: Eight to seven. Eight to seven.
2: Who? Uh, I will say Michigan.
1: Wow, I was not expecting that. Michigan is going to win eight of the next fifteen. Sure. I mean, I do think that the tide will turn at some point. You know, it always does. Um, whether give that's... me
2: your predictions. Give me your predictions ten years from now. Who are the head coaches of these two
1: teams? Oh, come on. How would I, how would you possibly predict that? <laughs> okay. Craig Krenzel and no, I have no idea. Craig Krenzel
2: is probably like the head of surgery <laughs> at some big hospital by then, so
1: it probably isn't helpful, I know.
2: I'm
1: just trying to think of a recent AJ Hawk, Ohio State coach AJ Hawk. I think
2: AJ Hawk's going to be in the media at that point. I don't. I don't think he's going to be there. Maybe I, I think it'll. It'll. You should say it's Brian Hartline.
1: Say Brian it. Hartline, there you go. And uh, Michigan coach Mike Hart, that could happen.
2: Yeah, that's you know what? That's a bold
1: pick. He's Hopefully, we'll
2: still have a podcast. Working but,
1: his way up the coaching profession. Now, if that is to happen, I really, really hope Mark Dantonio is still the Michigan State coach.
2: I will predict that's not going to. Happen.
1: That would be that yeah. would be epic to have the little brother, the the guy, the source of the little brother quote being the the opposing coach. Now, Look, there's uh, a
2: there's a lot of people. I mean, yeah, since you brought up, there's all, quite a few people who seem to think wouldn't shock them if Mark Dantonio decided to retire after this year. I don't know if that's going whoa. Happen.
1: Yeah, Bruce the dro- dropping a, yeah. the dropping the nugget there with that 40 minutes into the podcast. That's almost sure to get picked up somewhere. No, why do you think? Why the do they contract,
2: think that? There's a part of his contract I think that goes. We're talking about a, you know, a, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if if there was a new head coach there not too distant future and this is not one where it's like it would shock me if Lynn Swan was still the AD it would you know like this isn't one where I'm like okay this is definitely happening but I think there are some people who think much like look this is another job Frank Solich at Ohio some people think is, is may not be the head coach there past this year either I don't think this is anything where people inside football are like oh this is definitely happening but I think there's a little chatter about it
1: we actually had a conversation in, that, in our Big Ten group text about Michigan State and what to expect from them. this. Year. I think I, I picked them to go eight and four, but you know, D'Antonio has had these bounce back seasons before where you don't expect much of them and they, go to, and they win 10 or 11 games. Uh, given what you just said, I'll be very interested to see how this season plays out for the Spartans. All right, last question. This is a fun one from Clinton Eubanks. Dear Bruce and Stu, last season I was playing with my kids. And listening to the TV broadcast of one of Bruce's games, the booth threw it to the sideline reporter and I thought, I'll listen to what Feldman has to say. When he started talking, I thought I must, must have misheard what game Bruce said he was doing that Saturday on the previous week's podcast. But when I looked, there was there he was on my screen delivering his report. So I have two questions. Any idea why Bruce sounds so much different on the podcast than on the TV broadcast and which one best captures how he sounds in person? I'm going to
2: say, and this is no fault of Stu's necessarily, or some fault of Stu's, but more mine than his, uh, we have really crappy sound quality for the Audible, but that will be getting better soon. Uh, I know we've promised that before, but I so I
1: think... This time it's really happening.
2: Yeah, so I think it's going to be on the Fox broadcast just because we have professional audio people, and that's real. Now, why do I sound a lot different? I'll be honest. I mean, I'm on the field, and... It's loud down there. I have two IFBs in my ears, so sometimes there, sometimes I am shouting, or I feel like I'm not supposed to, but sometimes you feel like you are inclined to shout uh, when there's crowd noise and you're on the sidelines and some of that. And also there's adrenaline, and you feel a little like you're rushing to make sure you get your stuff in before the next play, because you know you never, never want to talk over a uh, over a play. So that's why.
1: Personally, I've never noticed any difference, but if, if he's asking me which one sounds more like you, I think it's got to be the podcast. Well, because you're of,
2: hearing me through a phone right now. You're not hearing me necessarily like what the what the audible listener usually uh, do. It
1: doesn't sound that different on the podcast. I mean, I was just going to say because of all, all the reasons you were just explaining is why I would think you probably don't sound as much like yourself on TV because you're projecting. Having t- tried to do this myself, you are projecting and you know, talking like you, you were talking on TV. You're not talking on TV the way you would if you were having, sitting here having a conversation with me right now, but the podcast is you having a natural conversation.
2: Yeah. One thing that's definitely different and this is, you know, I've noticed this is when I'm doing an, my open hit, which is usually about, you know, 30, 40 seconds. And it's usually something you've kind of memorized. There's not like, you're not reading it or anything like that because you're on camera. There's a little bit of kind of, you're doing the calculation in your head because you know you have to. You have to hit the time. Uh, there's, you know, especially down on the sideline, there's stuff going on around you that you have to be mindful of, unless you're talking into a camera. Whereas this, I don't have notes in front of me or anything. I'm just kind of winging it, and so you're just in your total comfort zone. Whereas, you know, no offense to, but I don't have like a, a lot of adrenaline going on right now. So I think that's why it's probably this is the way i sound on the phone when i talk to you as opposed to at a game i think there is a different level of adrenaline and it's even different for me honestly than if i'm in studio cuz in studio is much more of a comfort zone i just think there's something different about about being in the middle of a game as opposed to like being in a booth even i've never called a game from a booth short of doing some like you know, pre-game hits or stuff we've taped, but it's just it's hard to explain. Other than just you know, you're you're really kind of dealing with the adrenaline and the energy around you. And some people manage it, you know, better. And it, it's definitely a something that takes a little time to get used to.
1: I wonder how many people have ever done has ever been the opposite, where they were listening to this podcast and were like, "Wait a minute, is this the same guy I saw on my TV during the game last week?" <laughs> he doesn't sound the same. I don't know. Um, I don't know whether that's ever happened, but it would be if anybody has ever that's ever happened to them please write into the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you guys next week which is week zero Florida Miami week how about that how pumped are you
2: I am so fired up yeah I'm actually gonna uh, start the week at a, at a uh, in your backyard at Stanford doing something for our opening game and so I'm excited about this' we're, we're here we've made it through the offseason awesome
1: we have and we'll see you guys next week If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify follow me Stu at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Brucefeldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already you can try it for free 7 day free trial at theathletic.com/free trial so
0: come on get over here